Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. With me today is CEO and CIO, Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. It's great to be here, Dan. All right, Chris, uh, got a, maybe a little bit longer version of the podcast today. Um, a lot of topics co- to cover, pretty busy yeah. busy week or so since we last connected. Um, but let's just jump right in with, with Fed action from yesterday. Um, so the Fed raised rates you know, another 25 basis points. Um, Jay Powell implied that the banking system was still sound and that there's sufficient liquidity to address banking funding stress. stress. Um, and then here we are, you know, not even 24 hours later. Um, it looks like as though PacWest is about to fail or, or potentially be acquired at a, at a fire sale price. Um, we're seeing contagion that's spreading to other larger banks, looking at Zions, looking at Western Alliance, Comerica. Um, so two-part question for you. First, um, is a liquidity tool provided by the Fed sufficient to address the stress in the banking system? Um, and then after that, um, if you wouldn't mind looking at what you, know, what, what you think is the next chapter of the banking stress, um, and does the Fed have the tools to address the stress in the banking system? Yeah, no, the Fed's definitely got a real mess on its hand, and it, unfortunately for them, they created it. And the liquidity tool that they put in place that basically says, look, if you're a bank and you have U.S. treasuries or agency mortgages that are underwater because you bought them when they were yielding you know, 2% or 3%, and now they have to yield you know, anywhere from three and a half, four, five, or six percent. So they're trading pennies on the dollar, and you have unrealized losses. Rather than selling those securities, recognizing those losses, and take the capital hit, you can post them as collateral to the Fed. We'll give you the cash that you need, and we'll do it at par. So you don't have to take a, a haircut. It sounds great. And it will plug a 24-hour liquidity hole, but it doesn't address the problem. And the fundamental problem with the banks is that the cost to carry is moving too high relative to the loan, to the returns or the interest they get paid on their loan book. So let's say the average bank out there is earning about 4.5% on its loan book. Typically, it would have, you know, somewhere... One, you know, one and a half, two and a half percent overhead cost and funding cost. And so that difference is kind of their their profit or their cash flow that they can use to invest in the business and things such as that. Um, And they're underwater because right now the funding cost is much higher than what their loan book is producing in interest. And the Fed because they were so aggressive with QE and zero interest rates, they, in effect, forced the banks to deploy this capital <clears throat> at in asset prices that were unreasonably high. And then they turned right back around and then cre- cratered those asset prices. So the big issue with the liquidity tool that they put in place is the cost of funding is too high. It's punitive. And what they need to do, I, I believe it's actually close to 6%. And so that doesn't solve the cash flow problem and the lack of carry problem the banks have. Yes, if they need to meet withdrawals overnight, great, they can go get some cash. But as an ongoing stressor for the banks, that um, has not solved the problem. If they would cut the cost on that to 2% or 3%, it could be a fabulous tool. It doesn't help those banks that don't own treasuries and agencies that have other securities but it would help a few of those banks. Um, Does the Fed in general have the tools to address this? They certainly have the bandwidth to address it, but they really can't address it without acknowledging they've made a huge mistake. 
And so the question's going to become politically, can they address it? Or does it get so bad that they're forced to address it, acknowledging their errors and their ways? And then I think you would see, you know, Jay Powell would have a fairly short-lived remaining career at the Fed. We'd see if he would survive till you're in, as well as other members of the FOMC, for that matter. So, look, I think what they need to do is they got to cut rates. There's no way around it. The banks need to have time and breathing room in order to allow their loans to run off. They need, they'll stop lending. These loans mature at about a rate of, of, of a fifth of them a year, or 20% of their loans are going to mature every year, and they can reprice those up into a higher interest rate environment and pick up a positive spread again. So let's say we need almost two years in order to earn our way through this. That means the banks are going to reduce credit availability, which is not good for the economy. They're going to have to start hoarding cash and capital where they can sell securities. And a lot of their traditional channels just aren't available. They originate traditional loans and then sell those into a secondary market, and that secondary market just isn't buying uh, the loan origination. So they have a serious cash flow problem. So I think unless we see action by the Fed to, to put up a facility at a cost that's commensurate with the, the collateral that would be posted, so it's not negative cash flow, or they come out and cut rates, I think they need to cut rates, <clears throat> maybe 200 basis points, um, I think we're going to see ongoing stress in the banking system, and it's going to be a problem. And then speaking of ongoing stress in the banking system, um, let's just look at a, a more local level. Do you mind discussing the importance of, of regional banks for small business lending um, and yeah. community banks? And then as well, you know, what do you think the future is for regionals? Yeah. Look, the, the, the regional banking sector has been consolidating, you know, for at least the 30 years of my adult life. And we've probably seen it shrink at least in half over that period of time. It may be even closer to two-thirds. So consolidation is going to continue, and, and for the most part, that makes sense. What's critically important, though, is regional banks are the actual banks that finance the real economy. Uh, the big SIFI banks, the JP Morgans, the B of A's, the Wealth Fargo, they don't lend to small and mid-sized businesses. Regional banks are the banks that lend to companies with less than 500 employees, and that pocket, those businesses are what drive economic growth. They are what drive job creation. Large companies, ex, you know, the, the standout like an Amazon, aren't big job creators. They're usually job destroyers because um, they end up shedding and scaling over time, and they're just not net big, big employers. So regional banks are critically important. The other element of this is that regional banks also finance commercial real estate. And commercial real estate isn't just office. An office has a problem and there's going to be massive losses there. Commercial real estate is local multifamily development, apartment development, retail centers, standalone owner-occupied businesses, right? You need regional banks to do that because they understand the zip code they're lending into. They know the business players, and they serve an absolutely vital role in our economy, and we need them to be healthy, and we haven't run domestic banking policy that's supportive of regional banks in at least 10 years, if not longer. So I, it's something we need to address. Other countries 
don't use regional banks, but that's neither here nor there because we can't just pivot to a completely different system over time. And when I talked earlier about the negative carry and the cash flow problems, don't think for one second this is just related to the small banks. B of A is not in the best of shape in the sense that when you when you look at what their uh, their loan book and their deposit costs, um, I'm not saying they're going to become a a, a a Silicon Valley bank or PacWest overnight. But if we stay in this negative carry long enough, you're going to see significant stress built in the largest banks in this country. So I think it. I think they're going to have to address it sooner rather than later. Um, all right. Well, shift, shifting gears here a little bit. Uh, let's let's talk about the dollar. It's been some time since we've discussed the USD, um, and then you know recently we've heard a lot of news, particularly coming out of the BRIC country alliances. But um, this is on this on the kind of giving legs to the idea. Um, of the U.S. dollar losing its global reserve currency, um, and you know, just recently we saw that the it was reported the Chinese won um, that had overtaken the U.S. dollar in their trade flows for the first time in history. Um, so the question here is, you know, do you think the U.S. dollar's reserve status is at risk, um, and what are the implications uh, to any changes of the use of the dollar? Yeah. So this this is in line with what we've discussed for a number of years, which is the changing nature of the global currency system for very logical reasons. So it's not some sinister element. Um, and it's, it's at the heart of geopolitics, and it's at the heart of our political class, um, and they're going to fight it tooth and nail. Um, I'm going to shamelessly steal, I think, Luke Groman's framework for this, because I think he's done an excellent job of laying this out recently, in the sense that you need to separate the U.S. dollar and its use for trading activity from the U.S. dollar being held as a reserve asset at other central banks. And those are very distinct elements. And so as it relates to uh, transactions, look, it's going to follow the natural path, right? It's going to follow the natural path of the trading parties and who, who is trading among each other, does it make sense to use res their respective currencies or does it make sense to use the U.S. dollar? The US dollar, I wouldn't think of it as a store of value. I would just think of it as a medium of exchange. As it relates to the U.S. dollar being a store of value, um, for a host of reasons, because we've weaponized the dollar, because the world understands that our uh, balance of payments situation, our entitlement and deficits, that we really are on this path to, to instability and we haven't demonstrated uh, the, the, the wherewithal to address those challenges, number one, and more importantly, we haven't demonstrated a lack of willingness to destroy the dollar in the process. So people don't look at the current environment where we're going to monetize our deficits, monetize our entitlements, and run negative real rates as a good option if you, for example, are China and you're short commodities and you need commodities and to continue to import those, you're not going to hold U.S. dollar-based assets as a reserve asset if they're going to lose value over the next 10 years. So central banks around the world, either because they're worried about us sanctioning and taking their reserves from them or making them unusable, or because they're worried about the, the value of the dollar, 
have been reducing their holding of U.S. treasuries. Now, does that mean that the Chinese yuan or something else is going to step up and be the reserve currency in the world? No, because if you're going to be the predominant reserve currency, you have to be willing to run massive trade deficits to consume other goods from around the world, hollow out your manufacturing base, and hollow out your middle class. And no country wants to do that that would be in a position to take our place. So I think we're in a multi-year adjustment. It's very clear that um, other countries are choosing to hold gold instead of the dollar. That's going to continue. I think we're going to continue to see the dollar lose value relative to real assets. So countries that are trading among themselves and holding current and, and taking that currency and converting it and hold gold as a reserve asset, has we've seen a fairly significant increase in market share there. So it makes sense. And, and you know, just a couple of examples. If I'm, if I'm selling some commodities, whether it's grain or oil to China, and now I tell China, hey, you don't need dollars, just pay me in yuan, I can now take that yuan and then buy Chinese goods I need, right? They've moved off the base level of manufacturing. I can buy telecom equipment. I can buy other higher uh, valued good, more sophisticated goods. So I can recycle my yuan right back into the manufacturer of the globe. And so that is then taking share away from the dollar. And if I don't want to do that, I can hold gold. So if I'm OPEC, I'm selling oil to China, I'll take the yuan, I'll convert it into gold. It won't take gold from China's mainland. It'll actually come out of Western bullion banks, which is kind of a double whammy. I can then hold that gold. Then if the dollar depreciates and my gold rises in value, it's a store of value. I can then sell it and go get my dollars to import goods or go get my yuan to go buy more goods from other trading partners. So we're moving back to a neutral reserve asset at the central bank levels. Um, and so, you know, that'll have ramifications over time. I think tying into the banking crisis, tying into the debt ceiling negotiations, all of that is wrapped up in this dollar-based world because our predominant export for the last 40 years has been U.S. Treasuries, and now people don't want them. So it's going to make it incredibly difficult to continue to fund our deficits unless Powell's willing to wreck everything and preserve the dollar. And they've done it in the past. That could that could be a choice they take. All right. So still like lots to cover again, um, <laughs> but let's keep going. Um, this week or at the end of last week, debt ceiling really began to, to come front and center again. Um, it now is anticipated that the debt ceiling is going to be reached sometime in early June. What, what do you think? How, how is this going to play out? Yeah. So... You know, this is turning into the dumpster fire we thought it would. They originally thought they would have an, until mid to late summer to address this. As we said, we think tax receipts were going to collapse, and this was going to become front and center, uh, certainly in, in June, if not as early as May. So here we are. They're saying it's a June 1st deadline. Um, there's no easy solution there may and and they have less time than they think just because of political calendars. So uh, I think the House is only in session another week and a half or so. Uh, Biden leaves for uh, trips in about two weeks. So the meeting they're going to have on the ninth 
is critical. I don't think we're, you're not going to get a solution there, but there should what should come out of that is a framework forward. If not, you're going to see U.S. CDS begin to continue to spike. You're probably going to see, ironically, you know, long duration bonds get bid, and you'll see the market begin to sell off. Um, this is going to be a recurring issue. Maybe what they'll do is they'll do some patchwork delay. We'll put it off till we talk about budgets. That would be great. Um, we just don't even want to think about what would happen if, if they don't raise the debt ceiling. But there's just a lot less maneuverability than they thought they had. So they may need to put politics aside, pass something, come back to it later in the fall because they got, they got pretty serious things going on in banking and elsewhere. Um, all right, and then the last one we can we can wrap up for today is um, looking at a second half recovery. So you know, for, yeah. for for some time we've been looking out and and saying, yeah, you know, the first half of this twenty three looks pretty messy, um, but by the time we get through uh, into the second half, um, you know, things things will begin to stabilize. Question here is, you know, in, in light of the banking struggles and some of the other things that we've discussed so far today, you know, do you think we're still on target for for a second half, uh, you know, stabilization or potential recovery? The the short answer is no, unfortunately. So as the data comes out, uh, the deceleration in consumer activity and industrial activity is, is picking up pace. Just the lead lags with when we began raising rates. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're just now beginning to feel the impact of those early rate increases. So we were hoping the data was going to, as it began to come out, was going to sh show that, yeah, we're going to get a big deceleration and falling inflation and falling growth in the second quarter. Um, we think it'll be, you know, certainly negative quarter on quarter and likely close to zero or negative for the quarter on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, then when we get to the third quarter, we thought it, at a minimum, again, we've always said we're not going to get a big recovery. We may not get much of a recovery at all. We may be growing, you know, 1% or less, but that we'd get some stability. It now looks like yeah, you may get a little bit of stability potentially in the third quarter, but it's going to be so anemic, it may not be apparent. And then it looks like things are going to continue to slow down and prices are going to continue to fall in the in the fourth quarter. So now, um, as the data comes out, it's it's looking a little bit more like more headwinds than tailwinds. Uh, the degree of which the declines in the inf in the and growth will look like, you know, time will tell. And it's going to be different across industries. So a blanket statement on what's happening to economic growth doesn't mean we won't see some bottoming, for example, maybe in parts of semiconductors when we may see some finally some real softening in housing take hold. So it's going to be, um, it's going to continue to be choppy for the rest of the year for sure. All right, good. Well, um, good one today. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, some travel prohibits us from, from jumping on next week, but we'll, uh, we'll have you back here real soon. Sounds good, Dan. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice 
or services, and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws. Securities discussed within this podcast may be held in the Von Nelson Strategies.